This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 25th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Debt continues to pile up in the U.S., and under current projections, it's probably trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. Romina Baccia is the Cato Institute's freshly minted Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy. She's looked at the numbers and wants to remind us that historically there are just a few examples of countries bouncing back from this level of debt. The Biden administration uh, championed and Congress passed a piece of legislation aimed at, or at least according to the title of the legislation, was aimed at bringing down inflation. But of course, it's a massive spending bill, and it's not really clear uh, that this piece of legislation will do much to reduce inflation, but it is a massive spending bill. And uh, so maybe it would be helpful to understand better this relationship between government spending, which is a large fraction of total GDP, uh, and the inflation that we are experiencing right now. Yeah. So what happens when government spends money? It competes with resources uh, with the private sector. And um, it it depends on how many of those resources are available. And if government ends up consuming or redirecting a lot of those resources away from private sector activities, that can increase the price level. In, In general, if we look at the Inflation Reduction Act, what you have is a bill that has about $370 billion over the next 10 years of subsidies of various kinds for the energy industry. Some have called it um, a mini version of, of the Green New Deal. And then you also have about another $70 billion of Obamacare-related healthcare subsidies. So all in all, you're looking at over $400 billion in new government spending that is partly offset by new taxes on the private sector. But that also risks increasing prices for consumers because what happens, of course, if you raise prices um, on manufacturers and other producers, those prices most likely get passed on to consumers because you've just increased the cost of production. So far from actually reducing inflation, um, I'd, I'd say that this is more like an inflation acceleration act. Now, there's a lot of components that go into when we see inflation. Um, we've seen historical anomalies in terms of the supply shortages and the restrictions that were imposed during the pandemic. Um, But we shouldn't think that because the government is spending money that's going to reduce inflation, that's almost always going to increase inflation unless there are other offsetting factors. Right now, the federal government is sitting at a debt to GDP ratio of about 100 percent. We're rounding, but is there is there something magical about 100%? It's the opposite of magical. It's actually quite troubling. What do we know about debt levels this high? Um, there's been quite a bit of research done that shows uh, that once a, a nation, including industrialized nations like the United States, hit debt levels of 90% of GDP and higher, you find that growth slows because it's basically a signal that the size of government is approaching the size of the economy and the government is consuming more resources in the economy that could otherwise go towards investment, um, productive research, and um, goods and services 
um, that uh, that is are desired by the private sector, but instead you have uh, distortions. Um, a lot of government spending ends up being wasted because they you don't have the same incentives as in the private sector. Government spending isn't isn't responsive to the needs of the public. It's more often politically directed. And that's why you tend to see growth slowing as the government consumes more resources out of the private sector. It's also deeply troubling because the last time the United United States has had a public debt level as a percentage of GDP at nearly 100% of its economy was uh, immediately after World War II. And yes, we are coming out of a a pandemic, um, but... There was a lot of excessive spending that happened during the pandemic that wasn't directly related to fighting the virus, but uh, was an opportunity again for politicians to abuse a crisis in order to increase spending on unrelated um, items. And um, the the other deeply troubling fact is that we're not going to stop here. Uh, Actually, debt as a percentage of GDP is projected to sharply increase uh, more than doubling in the next 30 years. And that assumes very favorable favorable assumptions, meaning no no other pandemic, no major financial crises, no wars. Um, So once you account for the potential of other political, economic or geopolitical crises that we might face over that time period... um, it could it could go up by even more, and those would be completely historically unprecedented levels. Uh, and in the U.S. context, we're not sure what that would do, but it certainly increases the likelihood of a severe fiscal crisis that could undermine our economy, our prosperity, and also our geopolitical standing as a nation. Last time I checked, several years ago, the U.S. spent about two hundred fifty billion dollars a year annually servicing debt, and uh, my assumption is that a small percentage increase uh, caused by some sort of lack of confidence in the U.S. to pay its debts could dramatically increase that. What does that do to the federal budget? What does that do to uh, the other priorities that uh, the federal government has? Yeah. Any dollar that we spend on interest on the debt is a dollar that is not available to, say, core federal priorities like national defense. So um, it is one way I like to look at the interest on the debt that we pay is basically we're paying for past sins because we um, overspend. We spent more than the federal government took in in revenue, so went over budget. And the more we do that, um, the more the higher the debt gets, even small changes in the interest rate, which are highly unpredictable, um, can cause massive increases in the cost of uh, what uh, what the United States pays to service its debt. Um, so that that depends on the confidence that investors who buy U.S. Treasury bonds have in our country's ability to service that debt. Now, the United States is in a in an interesting position because uh, we print our own money. So technically, we don't ever need to default 
on our debt uh, because the United States can just print more money to service its debt. But when, as you print more and more money, you also run the risk of um, severely increasing inflation and potentially getting into an inflationary death spiral where you have so-called hyperinflation that accelerates at, an, at a rapid out-of-control pace. And in those scenarios, um, investors very much would expect that the value of every dollar that they receive um, in interest and also principal repayment, uh, those dollars aren't going to be worth as much as um, when the United States first borrowed that money from those investors. And so you're basically defaulting by other means, by um, deflating the value of your currency. Um, that's That can be very effective for countries, but it's also something that uh, will not go on for long as investors catch on that that's what's going on. And then if they dump treasury bonds and don't buy anymore, you could find yourself in a situation where the U.S. dollar all of a sudden uh, significantly depreciates and your currency becomes worthless. Now, that is a um, sort of worst case scenario, but it wouldn't be the first time for a nation to undermine its own prosperity uh, because of bad financial financial practices. Uh, a very recent example, um, going back to uh, World War II again, um, would be Britain. The, uh, the UK uh, was a major global superpower up until that war. And one of the ways that it undermined um, the pound's standing and value in the global marketplace was by spending too much on social programs. And that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in, where despite the recent spending bills, if you look at the CHIPS Act or now the Inflation Reduction Act or Inflation Acceleration Act, if we're specific here, the actual primary driver of spending and debt uh, in the U.S. budget are the major entitlement programs. And that's where what nobody wants to talk about, because it's Social Security and it's Medicare, and those are on uh, growing on autopilot. So politicians don't have to make any bipartisan uh, deals. They can just do nothing, and those programs will drive us into ruin. People refer to the spending that is done on entitlement programs as mandatory spending which is a misnomer because they could cut that spending if they wanted to. Uh, there is no uh, contractual or other uh, requirement that individuals be paid the money that they have been promised. I put promised in air quotes uh, because it is not genuinely a promise. Those, those uh, programs can be reduced uh, if Congress so decides. But like you said, they're on autopilot. They're politically a very troubling kind of uh, promise to break. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that the debt level of debt that the United States will have uh, projected to hold in the uh, coming years is unprecedented. Well, as you sort of mentioned, as you alluded to, it's unprecedented for this country. It's not unprecedented for other countries that have suffered pretty, pretty terrible fates for uh, having attempted to sustain this level of debt. Yes, that's right. What we're looking at over the next 30 years is we assume that the, the Trump tax cuts will be allowed to expire. They're set to expire in 2025. We would still reach a publicly held debt level to GDP of 185 percent, so almost doubling from the current level. But then again, I don't think that um, those it's 
it's politically realistic to assume those tax cuts, which are primarily for for families uh, and and middle class households, will be allowed to expire. That seems like a political football. We'll see what happens when we get to that point. But assuming those tax cuts get extended, we are looking at a publicly held debt level to GDP of 260 percent. It's a crazy number. Um, there's one country that has debt levels this high that has been able to sustain them that we can look to as a potential case study for the future. And that is Japan, uh, which has been at a debt level of 250% of GDP for quite some time. However, we are we differ from Japan in a significant way, which is that most of Japan's publicly held debt is held by its own public. So it is domestically held debt. In the United States context, uh, we are looking at uh, most of that debt being held in uh, in, in 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 foreign markets. Um, China and Japan are actually some of our largest debt holders. So. Um, that's a very different scenario than when it's basically your own population saving versus you're dependent and reliant on outside investors, which is the scenario we find ourselves in. So I don't think it's reasonable to assume that we could sustain a similar level of debt to GDP in Japan because we are dependent on those investors. Um, additionally, if you look at the Japanese economy, it's been stagnant for quite some time. Um, and so you really see there the impact of this high debt and the decline in population uh, leading to a country that's been stagnant and without growth, you um, you basically, your population, uh, living standards don't improve. Growth is also uh, correlated with an increase in life expectancy and better, better health conditions. So you pay a very high price when you rack up debt that uh, suppresses your economic growth in such a significant way. And again, I do worry that we would find ourselves in a very different uh, situation if the U.S. debt were to go up to, you know, even just 200 percent of GDP um, doubling from the current level where I think investors would start um, disciplining um, the U.S. Congress uh, in an attempt to ensure that they get the full value or close to the full value of um, what they loaned the government and not some uh, deflated value because we're we're unable to manage our our finances. All is not lost, right? Right. I mean there are there are things that uh with the right intestinal fortitude uh Congress could do. Uh but I just don't see that this problem of ever increasing amounts of debt and the political constituencies for the benefits that that debt uh is enabling I just don't I just don't see a political appetite for doing it. So if if Congress woke up tomorrow and decided this is our priority dealing with this debt and trying to uh, bring it back down to a more rational level, what would that look like? So there have been various budget plans uh, introduced. And the sooner you start chipping away at the debt, uh, you can the the more gradual the changes that you need to make um and that means that you impose less pain people have more time to adapt to the new realities for example if you reduce social security benefits um over the long run um people can 
substitute by saving more in private retirement accounts, which will grow with the market. And so they can uh, then replace what they would have expected to receive from Social Security um, through their own private savings. But if you wait and you don't make those uh, changes now, you could find yourself in a situation where much more drastic measures would be required that would have to be implemented fairly quickly. People wouldn't have time to uh, prepare. They wouldn't have time to save um, and make other provisions accounting for those changes in policy. And so it becomes harder and harder the longer you wait. The issue we have is that like you mentioned before, so-called mandatory spending or rather autopilot spending is that these programs increase automatically with changes in the cost of living, with the increase in the number of beneficiaries, and also importantly, with the increase in life expectancy, which has been one of the primary cost drivers. So what you can do there is you could increase the um, the retirement age or the so-called eligibility age. You can means test benefits where you focus them on those individuals who need them the most, while wealthier individuals are expected to make ends meet with their own savings and investments. So you have ways of addressing this. Um, I do think that what we need in this case is a lot more public education. I think Congress is going to lag behind the public on this. And lawmakers are also uh, incredibly myopic, only thinking about the next election, their primary goal being to get reelected, not necessarily fix the country's financial situation, but there's definitely an attitude of kicking the can down the road and letting someone else deal with it. Um, so I think that pressure will need to come from the outside as uh, the American people understand just the, uh, the severe consequences that we will face and the much more drastic policy changes that would be required that Congress might be forced into if outside investors lose confidence and stop buying all this debt that finances um, these entitlement programs, primarily Social Security and Medicare, um, then I think we can we can get to a place where um, lawmakers might be able to come together and make those gradual changes sooner rather than later. But it doesn't help when you have these um crony subsidy bills getting passed. Uh, this corporate welfare we saw both in the CHIPS Act and now with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act uh, for the energy industry, that just sends the wrong signal as if we had all this money to spend that if you can spend money on cronies, it's going to be very hard to explain to the American people why you need to adjust their Medicare and Social Security benefits, even though in the big picture, the subsidies still are a small portion of the overall budget. It still it just sends the wrong signal politically, and it, it it doesn't show any seriousness in terms of understanding the fiscal situation that we're in, and the potential catastrophe that we're heading towards. So I'm afraid that we likely have delayed this issue even further. Um, but um, as we see potential changes in Congress and the makeup of our political leaders, um, there might be another chance to to correct things. But it's going to be difficult either way. But you have seen nations do it. You saw Sweden. I mean, Sweden, which is considered a very progressive uh, European nation, um, has a has a has a better, more balanced approach to its budget than we do. So we know that it's possible. And one of the things they did is change the default, so there aren't automatic increases in certain entitlement programs. Um, instead, they reflect the the fiscal 
uh, realities better and also the demographic realities of their population. So it's a conversation we need to have in the United States, and we should be having it soon um, because that just gives us a lot more option to deal with this problem. Romina Baccia directs budget and entitlement policy at the Cato Institute. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.